This season, Taniela speaks to endometriosis and chronic illness patients, those who are going through or have gone through the pain and the diagnosis of endometriosis and are navigating this extremely common but poorly understood condition. Over the last few years, an army of patients have arisen. They are speaking out, fighting back, doing their own research and raising awareness of endometriosis. Let's listen to these brave warriors who have decided that enough is enough and who will stop at nothing to reclaim their health. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Not Defined by Endo Podcast. Today's conversation is with Stephanie Moss. Stephanie is an endometriosis advocate, infertility warrior, trauma survivor, and a third-year medical student pursuing her medical doctorate at Rush Medical College in Chicago. She has a passion for trauma-informed care and advocating for those disenfranchised in society. She loves to share her story through writing, social media, podcasts, and presentations. Her work has been featured across various platforms, including the Endometriosis Foundation, Kevin MD, American Medical Women's Association, and Survival Revive. She has also created a website called www.medpsychmoss.com, which features her blog, links to her work, and a comprehensive selection of trauma-informed resources for both patients and healthcare providers. Join me today and let's listen to Stephanie's story. Welcome, Stephanie, to the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on Not Defined by Endo and sharing your story. I really appreciate you, your presence here today. Oh, thank you. It's such an honor to be here and be able to share my story. Yeah. And for those who are listening, um, I reached out to Stephanie on Twitter and um, because I saw a tweet about her experience and I would like to, I was curious and I was like, I need to get her on the show so we can talk about what she's been through. Um, Stephanie is a medical student and she has endometriosis, but I'll stop there and then let's all learn about Stephanie together. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So, oh yes, I I, I do remember that. Um, It was Earlier at, I believe it was last year that I started uh, writing about my experience, I had gotten to a point uh, that just so much was was going on in my life, both new mental diagnosis, new physical diagnoses, infertility, endometriosis, that there was just so much going on. I just, I had to write it down. Um, It was the only way I could process it since no one in my, in my in my family or in the close friends was dealing with so severe um, diagnoses and challenges. So I started writing down with the goal to hopefully write a book one day. And I did different, I have done different sections and specifically the section on kind of my physical health was a lot about my journey to being diagnosed with endometriosis. And I ended up publishing it first on my blog and the the endometriosis foundation actually reached out to me. They had randomly seen it and they're like, Oh my God, let's, let's put this on the endo foundation's website, which was so, which was amazing, a huge honor. So we kind of cut it down, made it, um, and posted it on there. And that was kind of the start of all these amazing people that reached out that are also similarly going through 
kind of a, a struggling diagnosis journey of medical gaslighting and struggling with doctors after doctors that just don't know what they're dealing with, saying that their pain isn't valid, all these things, such similar experiences. And it's it's been so heartwarming to know that I'm not alone and other people are not alone, that it's one in 10, 10% of women. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. And um, thank you so much for sharing that. Like you said, I think one of the aims of this show is to get people to realize that they're not alone and they're not defined by, you know, what, whatever the condition is. So let's talk a bit more about the condition and your path or your journey to diagnosis. What were your symptoms? When did they start? And, you know, how did you now get to the point where you got diagnosed with endometriosis? And if you want to share any other conditions you might have been diagnosed with? Yes, of course. Um, I think a lot of it started around puberty where I was starting. I had a lot of period cramps that thought it was normal. Um, A lot of my friends in school were also suffering with cramps and PMS. And so I just assumed it was normal to um, what all women um, struggle with. I remember I had gone to a gynecologist early, um, maybe when I was 15 or 16 with my parent and the OBGYN suggested, well, to put me on a birth control pill. My parents did not like that. So that was kind of the last time I saw a gynecologist pre, yeah, before I was 18 years old. And I kind of just dealt with the pain. It wasn't until I actually was over 18, I could move out to college that I actually started taking control over my own health care. And I had been experiencing so much stomach pain. So I went to, uh, I think I went to a primary care doctor, which pushed me to a gastroenterologist. I had an endoscopy, a colonoscopy. The endoscopy actually found uh, some stomach ulcers. So for a couple of years, I was like, oh, I guess that is the pain I'm dealing with. Stomach ulcers, okay. But even after we dealt with the stomach ulcers, the pain was still there. Um, So of course, I went to a couple other gynecologists and um, I ended up just randomly getting a IUD in place because I was struggling with managing the different doses of birth control pills. None of them would really get rid of the pain. So I was on an IUD and then I went to med school. And in medical school, it was my second year of medical school, we we were doing the sex and reproduction block. And one of the first conditions we started going through is endometriosis. And it was so interesting because as I read the, the symptoms of endometriosis, I felt like I started, I started like, wait, I have that. Wait, I have that. Wait, that's not, you're saying that pain while going to the bathroom is not normal. Oh, you're saying pain during sex is not normal. Oh, you're saying that you know, all these different, all these different symptoms of pain and struggle, I I felt, I felt they were like, I felt very connected to it. And it was, yeah. So yeah, that was kind of the the first little bit of, for the first time I really heard and started to connect with this diagnosis. That's amazing. Like, honestly, that's interesting because we all know that there's a lot of misinformation. There's so much lack of knowledge about endometriosis. So it's quite interesting that one of the first things in you know your gynae class or was um, about endometriosis. And I have a quick question about that. We're told that you know doctors don't 
know a lot about endometriosis they need to be they need to be specialists in endometriosis not just a general gynecologist who is you know an obstetrician who's just giving birth to children um so how would you say the um teaching of endometriosis as a course or maybe it's not just a course maybe it's just part of a course but would you say that you got a lot of information in that course because as a medical student I'm sure that I feel like it's just one of so many things you are taught. So how would you say the teaching of endometriosis was for you? That's a really good question. I would love to talk about that more. Um, So yeah, I would say we have a textbook. Um, It's called a first aid book. Um, And it is about um, 900 pages. And we have to pretty much memorize that 900 page book in order to take our first board exam. And I would say in that there's about 20 pages of everything to do with, no, I would say less than that, um, maybe 10 pages of like gynecological, female specific, reproductive type conditions. And then go even farther, it's a couple lines that says endometriosis, um, symptoms of this, 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 I would actually, I would love to pull it up. Um, I'll pull it up at some point. Small, like these are the symptoms. This is quickly what we do. And then, and then that's it. And that's how it is for every single thing. They usually have like, this is the genetics. These are the symptoms. Maybe this is the, how you diagnose, whether if it's surgery or if it's blood tests. And maybe sometimes they have what the, what the medication is something like that. Now, now I do want to recognize this is just the basic knowledge, but it's the basic knowledge that every single doctor in the U.S. gets. So any doctor that currently graduates, at least in the past 10 years, they've had to have heard of endometriosis because it's a requirement in the book. Now, the thing is, that's not, if we go to doctors that are over 20, um, they graduated over 20 years ago, you know, prior to the 2000s, they probably have never heard of that condition. And that's a problem. Wow. 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 Stephanie, you just, you know, I feel like a light, bright light shining because I haven't actually spoken to someone, a medical student. I've spoken to doctors, mm. um, you know, but it's so interesting to speak to you and really understand what you're actually learning about endometriosis. Mm. So it doesn't, it's almost like, you know, apart from the doctors that have no empathy and no desire to even learn and believe their patients, there's, you, can almost, you can almost not blame the doctors because it's what, you know, they don't get, there's so many things, like you said, a 900 page book that, you know, a couple of pages are about endometriosis and there's no way, and endometriosis is just one condition of, you know, many other female gynecological conditions. So it's almost like you have to either have an interest or a very, very good memory so that you remember that, okay, maybe it's this, these symptoms remind me of this. So it's not now, it's kind of getting clearer, you know, and that's why as an advocate, I don't want us to just be like, oh, doctors are, you know, horrible people. Oh my God, I was, there's all of the gaslighting and all of that happening. But I love to hear the other perspective, which is how were you trained? You know, what were you taught yourself and why is this happening so that we can then begin to figure out what the solution to this problem is, you know? So thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing that. (laughs) No. And I'm so glad I actually pulled it up. Um, I actually pulled up the, the book and I'm looking at it and they have endometriosis and 
they have um, little pictures of what it can look like. Mm -hmm. Now, in the research I've done, there is not these two pictures that I have in the book. There's so many types of ways endometriosis can show up. And then right here, it's so focused on like the chocolate cyst, uh, which means endometrioma on the ovary. Mm. Um, But there's at least in this book, which let me remind you, this is the one that every single person, not just in the US, um, any international person that comes and practices in the US usually reads in order to pass their first year exam. Mm. They read this. And in this little thing, I don't see anything that talks about um, the cysts going to other parts of the body, of it having gastro um, issues with bowel issues with bladder, but there's so much research out there that that's the case. And that's Mm. such a common thing. Um, But like I said, I do want to mention that this is just the beginning. Um, once, once individuals go to their third year of medical school, then we actually spend, um, a couple months in the OB section, Mm -hmm. maybe about a week or two in clinic. And that's where they learn a little bit more about endometriosis. Mm -hmm. But again, if in that one to two weeks, and this is for every single medical condition, you know, you just get a flavor of it. Yeah. And then unless you go into OB-GYN, you might never hear it again. And I, I love what you said that it's a whole body disease. And if it's a whole body disease, that means people in the gastrology, people in psychiatry, like they don't connect to really what it is. They just have, you know, like a sentence memory that they yeah. remember from medical school. And if, if what you're presenting with does not match with the little memory hook they remember, they're going to throw it out the window Yeah. So and not even consider it. Yeah. Yes. And yes, you're right. It's a whole body disease. And like you were saying earlier, once you say you're having menstrual cramps, the first thing, I think one of the issues as well is that the first thing is that you're given, you know, the pill, right? You're given contraceptives Mm -hmm. once you present with maybe period pains and things like that. But it's for me, it's just like you're masking the symptoms and you're basically pushing the problem forward. You're actually waiting for the problem to balloon into more than it was at that point in time. So I think that's also another problem that needs to be addressed that, you know, fine, the pill might be the solution for some people, but I think that it's masking a bigger problem and that problem should be investigated first or at least to rule it out before, you know, because most kids or most young adults who present with those problems, they just offer them the pill and they just say, you know, Mm -hmm. if you have the pill, then you're fine. And then that's what happens. But endometriosis does not stop just because you're on the pill. And that's one thing I want to, yeah, mention as well. That's a really good point. Yeah, we, there's, there's so many things out there um, saying like, oh, this will cure endometriosis. And like, no, we do not have a way right now to cure. We have a ways to manage it, but we're still working on that. And it was interesting what you were saying um, that I thought about of why isn't it talked about? Why isn't it educated as just like we educate about other other medical conditions in the community community um from what i've been learning sexual education both in the u.s and just in medical school is almost non-existent um and then it is very difficult for physicians they feel very uncomfortable with asking the patient about pain during sex during or pain when putting in a tampon or pain during a pelvic exam and of course patients are not going to bring that up voluntarily so we have a kind of a 
uh, we have a huge problem where physicians are uncomfortable with asking their patients about pelvic and sexual pain. And then patients are also embarrassed to tell their doctors. So we have this huge barrier going on both ways. Wow. Yeah, I never thought of it, of it that way. I know that, yes, you're right. Um, patients can feel uncomfortable. Patients can feel rushed. You know, sometimes you go into your doctor's office and you just forget exactly everything you wanted to say. Yeah, but I've never actually thought about it the other way that doctors are also uncomfortable, you know, can be uncomfortable, you know, asking, you know, about pain during sex, like you said, or pain during when you're trying to um insert a tampon or you know pain during bowel movements things like that Mm -hmm. we have to stop feeling ashamed I think it's really important I I mean it's not easy but we have to realize that it's not a thing of shame to be in pain like you Mm -hmm. quicker you can talk about it the quicker you hopefully will get a solution so that's really important and to anyone listening I'd like to say that it's really important that you are able to, you know, document all your symptoms when you're going to your doctors, because you never know, it might be one of the things you mentioned that will strike something in the doctor's, you know, memory and remind the person about, you know, maybe endometriosis or fibroids or whatever other conditions that it might be pointing to. So yes, that's something. I that is to. so true. I'm really glad you said that because that is the case. If, if you bring it up to the physician, right, it's, it might, it might trigger memory or it might trigger at least like, oh, I don't know, let's refer you to someone who knows more. And that is totally fine. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so let's go ahead with your story. (laughs) So how did you, so once you got diagnosed, what was next? Like you got (laughs) diagnosed with, um, tell me a bit more about the actual diagnosis process. Did you have a surgery? And after that, what happened next? Were you put on the pill? Were you put on loop? Sorry, you were already put on the pill. So were you put on Lupron? What did you, what did you get done? Yeah. So, okay. So that's a really good question. So it's really interesting because I read these symptoms in my book, going back to the book, I saw these like, Oh, this looks like endometriosis. So I then go to my primary care doctor at med school and I say, Hey, I've been experiencing these symptoms a long time now. I think I have endometriosis. And the response to the doc from the doctor was, no, you're just being a med student. It's called med student anxiety, where they start thinking they have all these different symptoms. So automatically from my physician, that's for medical students says, nah, you know, someone who's actually educated in the medical conditions is saying that I'm, that what I'm experiencing is not correct. And it's just anxiety. And so a couple, I, a couple months passed. And then I actually, I actually go to an, to a specialist of endometriosis, which I didn't, of course, before would never have been able to afford or being able to find. And the only way I was, I was able to do that because my medical school health insurance, since we were connected to a a university, we had one of the best health insurances. So I got one. And the moment I walked into this OB, she was like, oh yeah, that sounds definitely endometriosis. Let's schedule the surgery in two weeks. And I was just floored. I I just couldn't believe it. It was like, for the first time in eight, 10 years, someone's saying, yes, mm. that, that sounds like endometriosis or that sounds like something, or that's not normal. So that, that was the first, like, just amazing thing that happened. I went through, I had the surgery, but, um, at my school actually, because they're one of the only, they're one of the only hospitals in the huge city of Chicago. 
who has one of the Da Vinci machines. So already a huge privilege there. Wow. Um, I had the excision surgery with the, with the um, Da Vinci machine. They found that both my tubes were fully, fully clogged with endometriosis. Thankfully, my eggs, um, eggs, my ovaries looked fine. So I didn't have any of those endometriomas. Um, I did have a, um, a hole in my pouch of Douglas. So that was one of the things that could, that, um, they saw. And then they saw a lot of different, um, possible scar tissue. Hmm. So that was definitely the start of being able to be like, wow, I'm, this is, this is real. It all kind of came to fruition. And yeah, um, I found out I had infertility. I went through, um, removing my eggs a couple months ago in October after a ridiculously long time fighting with my insurance because my insurance did not want to pay obviously for the medications. And I'm actually currently in another fight to do, to do it again because they don't want to pay for them again, even though they, they did it. I was amazed. They did it once we did. Yeah. No one knows how magic we were able to get it approved, but wow. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Wow. First of all, can I just say that what happened to you was literally the definition of gaslighting. Like, I cannot believe that someone in, you know, in medical school, you know, where you are is saying that, you know, you've got what, like you're imagining things just because, you know, yeah. So basically the person is saying that because you're learning so much about all sorts of conditions, then you've picked one of them magically. You've mm-hmm. picked one of them and you decide that this must be the one, like, I like this one. Hmm, mm-hmm. I like this one. This is what's wrong with me. Like, that's <laughs> ridiculous, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it's true. It does. The, the concept of medical students or anyone that's learning about a condition, mm. they, of course, they're going to get some sort of anxiousness yeah. that they could have the condition. Yeah. But usually that goes away after yeah. you're like, oh, wait, I don't have all these other things. Maybe I have one or two things but I don't have the rest of these, but the fact that I was list, I was checking every single one and, Mm. you know, the history was there, the symptomatology was there. Yeah. It, it's really disappointing. Yeah. Very disappointing. I'm just really glad that you, you know, you had the knowledge, you had the self-awareness and you also had access to you in the insurance and to the medical professionals that could, you know, the gynecologists that could help you um, and give you the excision surgery. So is that the only surgery you've done so far? Correct. Yes. That is only the surgery I've done, I guess, minus having my follicles removed, which I do want to say it was horrendous. It was so painful to do those injections. Oh, it was, it was painful because what you're doing is you're increasing the amount of estrogen in your body to kind of tell your, tell your ovaries, let's start producing more eggs. Let's start making them big. So then imagine your ovaries that already are sensitive because of any excisions and then they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They're touching all the areas that cause pain. So Mm -hmm. already the eggs growing were so painful. And I've talked to other individuals who've gone through IVF and endo and it. It's ridiculously painful. Other individuals that are going through kind of the IVF uh, um, ovarian follicle stimulation, it can be uncomfortable but nothing compared to someone who has already, who has a adhesion and then they're increasing the amount of hormones. Yeah. So that was definitely, um, they say that it's supposed to take two weeks. I struggled with 
about a month, month and a half, two months with this ridiculous pain. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry about that. But how do you feel now? Is it a bit better now? Thankfully it is. It's definitely been a lot of work and playing around with those hormones to bring my hormones back down to normal. I had something called hyperstimulated ovarian syndrome after it, uh, which is a known side effect, um, but not a good one. Hmm. And unfortunately, I actually went to the ER that night after my, uh, my ovarian stimulation. And unfortunately, again, the resident attending who uh, the resident um, physician that was that took care of me in the ER had no idea and didn't even do an ultrasound, even though I told him, Hey, I had, I just came from IVF, you know, removal of eggs, no knowledge, um, didn't even consider that. And I had so much liquid in my, in my abdominal cavity. So it's again, just another show of just how uneducated individuals are regarding female pelvic floor conditions. Yeah. I also believe that a lot of work needs to be done regarding any female conditions. We need mm-hmm. to speak up more. We need to have more empathy. We need to educate ourselves a lot more because I feel like it's unbelievable, like how little we know about some of these conditions and how can someone present to you and say, okay, this is, you know, I just had this stimulation. I'm going through this process and you don't even consider to do an ultrasound, even if you mm-hmm. don't even know about ovarian <laughs> hyperstimulation. Just say, right. you know what? This is most times when you say anything about female thing, you say, okay, let's do it. Let's do an ultrasound just for the sake of it. You know, right. you're not even trying to do that. So I don't know. We just need yeah. to keep speaking up and mm-hmm. you know keep doing this work. And I'm sure that hopefully, hopefully in our children's generation, you know, in the next generation, hopefully things will change. But yeah. We keep working at it. Exactly. We don't give up. I love we, that. We yeah. never give up. Let's talk about you mentioned a bit about how difficult it was for you with your insurance. And I'm really curious to talk. And you know, I mean I'm curious and I'm interested in talking about how it works in the US because I know that while we all say excision surgery is a gold standard of treatment, a lot of people don't have access to excision. So first of all, can we talk about the difference between ablation and excision and how it works when it comes to insurance and why was it difficult for you to get them to approve um, your treatments? Just to, for yeah. people to know a bit more about how it is, how it works and why it's so difficult for everyone. Yes, and I, I definitely want to preface that this was definitely my experience with my insurance, which um, I have a PPO plan, which is one of the highest, there is kind of the lower grades of Medicaid individuals who make under, I believe it's like $40,000 or a certain amount, they are eligible for Medicaid and Medicaid plays some that uh, can pay, but there's definitely you have to go through approvals, you have to have a special doc, you have to have a doctor referral, you, so many things, so many barriers. And then a lot of hospitals don't even accept Medicaid. Um, so then you're, if you have a lower end insurance because you don't have enough money, if you have, I was actually, so I work, um, I work with people who have pain um, in a health clinic and I was dealing with, um, with a patient just like that, that she had an endometriosis and she was calling out from her work so much because of the pain that she, that they fired her. And wow. she had been without work for the past year 
which meant that she could no longer afford insurance. So she was going through Medicaid and what a pain she's had to get anything done because that's unfortunately the horrible system we have in the US of healthcare of people who need it and, but just can't afford it because mm-hmm. cannot get the care they need. So anyway, I kind of went on a sidetrack there. So anyway, yeah, okay. yeah there's it's important for people and, to actually know about this as well. So that's good. Good. Yeah. And then I would say there's kind of like a mid-level, um, mid-level insurances. Uh, sometimes they are um, like HMO plans and, or plans that are, that you have to, that you, um, you have a single kind of system and you can only be, you cannot go outside that system. That's actually the insurance that I grew up with. Um, it was a Kaiser insurance back where I used to live in Colorado, where you could only go to uh, OB-GYN in that hospital system and they could only refer you to a surgeon in that system. Right. Now, let's say there's no surgeons that deal with endometriosis, you will never get um, cared for with that insurance. And so that was kind of my issue growing up before, before 18, or actually I would say before 22, before I went to medical school, that I could not get the proper care in that sense. Okay. Now, not all of HMOs are like that, but it, you know, you had to be in that system. Hmm. Now go to more of the premium plans. Those are kind of the, those are the PPO type plans. And that's, that's something that my um, medical school pays for. Um, because we are health, because we're a health entity, I'm going to say, I'm going to say not every medical school pays for their students that have insurance. So already my school is at, it cares about their, their students health, but that's something else. Okay. So in there, we can then choose to go to what almost any physician we want, um, without a referral. That's already a, a barrier that we don't have. And so that was thankfully how I got so lucky is I did my own research. I found a physician who was specialized. Um, She had been working in the endometriosis um, ward and especially with the Da Vinci machine specifically trained for over 30 years. And so I, I was able to get in with her and right away go into the hospital, which had this machine. Now this machine um, already, if you, if you are in a state or a city that doesn't have these machines, you're not going to get that. And then of course, a lot of insurances don't even cover it because it's such an expensive machine. I believe each, each machine costs over a million dollars. So a lot of insurances don't want to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is crazy. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's, um, and so, yeah, I guess I don't, I, I can't, talk specifically about the difference between ablation or excision um, from my limited knowledge of medical of medicine and what I've seen the ablation is actually burning off um, the tissue where excision is actually cutting it and this da Vinci machine puts in a special dye it's a mm. green dye that then they can turn off the lights and they can see the areas of the skin which are getting more blood flow and they can assume, um, the physician assumes that more blood flow is more likely to be endometriosis, but it could be something else too. But mm-hmm. that's usually where they go in with their little tiny scissors and cut, 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 and then send it to pathology. So yeah, that's kind of how that works. Um, 
And then I guess I should say, even with my top um, insurance and everything like that, I think it ended up being the bill of over $30,000 and I still had to pay $6,000. Really? Even after all of that. Yeah, I got a bill at the end saying that your insurance, they do kind of an 80%, 20% thing of you pay, uh, the insurance pays 80%, you have to pay 20%. And thankfully, um, I then applied. So add in another, another layer of complexity, I applied for financial aid, and the hospital that I was in, accepted my financial aid many months later, because I didn't make any money, I'm negative money, you know, every year, I take out $100,000 to go to medical school. I didn't work at that time, because we're not allowed to work in medical school, because we work 80 hours a week. So anyway, yeah, that's how I got that. Thankfully, how I use the money from the, the hospital pays for most medical procedures, if the person is below a certain poverty level. And at that point, since I was making $0 as a medical student, I could do that. But so much complexity, so much privilege. And yeah, wow, crazy, and still struggling to get things paid. Yeah, I can't even imagine if I was supposed to bring 6,000 well, pounds because I'm in the UK. Mm-hmm. I would just be like, I don't have it. I literally do not have that. And it's impossible. Right. So mm-hmm. it's this disease takes and takes and takes. And mm-hmm. I honestly applaud you. And I think you're really strong considering everything you've gone through. Um, I would say here in the UK, it's a bit different because most of mm-hmm. us are in the national health um, system, which means basically healthcare is, bas- is free. And what we just pay for is medication and it's even subsidized. Mm-hmm. So every medication is still like, I think nine pounds now, regardless of what, what it is. But then there's the opportunity or because the NHS is really, you know, overwhelmed at the moment and overburdened with, um, you know, backlogs and so much going on, like the waiting times are so long. So you might be waiting Mm. for years before you can even get anyone listening to you or even trying to do investigations on what's wrong with you. Um, But then there's the other part, which is private. So you can go private and that's where, you know, you have to pay for each procedure. You have to pay for... Mm. Um, you know every single thing the blood test the consultation the first consultation might be like 300 to 500 pounds just to see someone and figure out what's even going on in the first place and then after that um, you know you pay for every blood test thereafter you pay for you know every procedure you pay for all the medication Um, so it's not easy in either of the worlds but I think you know there are pros and cons I think for me the con or the danger with going private here in the uk is you have to do your research first because Mm -hmm. imagine going private and paying all that money to someone who doesn't even know what they're doing you know someone who doesn't have enough endometriosis or excision experience and you just go pay all that money and they and you wake up from your surgery and like they're like well uh you know we've tried our best or we can't see any Mm -hmm. endometriosis just because they haven't also learn that it's not only the um chocolate cysts that are the colors of endometriosis you can have part part gunpowder lesions you can have black you can have white you can have clear so yeah it's just a whole a whole department yeah. <laughs> i think endometriosis feels like it should be outside of gynecology like every disease every condition needs their own department i know it can't happen mm-hmm. that way but it's just it's just really tough. So yeah, but yeah. thank you so much for sharing um, about 
yeah everything you've been through so how has it been now now that you've had your excision did your symptoms you know disappear did they get a lot better i know that there's no cure for endometriosis but what has it been life been like i know you've also been dealing with um fertility treatments um but outside of that just for the endometriosis how has it been have you felt like you know you have a lot of improvement or do you feel well, just let me know how you're feeling right now it's a complicated question mm. <laughs> i would say um the first after the pain went away of thing of people cutting into my into my peritoneum um which is the sac in in your um, abdominal cavity I actually some of my um, pain did go away um, which was very amazing and this is this is the part that I actually don't mention a lot the things that they cut out they sent them to pathology and they actually didn't come back as endometriosis that's the worst part um, but since the doctor had seen all these other symptoms in there and that were endometriosis and they looked like endometriosis. It was just, you know, the pathology, the pathologist didn't see it in some of the sick, some of the parts she cut out. So from what, from what the, the doctor and I've talked about, she wasn't able to go to the bowels. She wasn't able to go to the bladder because she's not comfortable and that's not her department. You know, she's not a urologist, so she didn't touch the bladder. And that's where I have a lot of my pain is the bladder. She didn't go um, through the hole that I had in my um, pouch of Douglas, which is kind of the, the fold of skin behind the uterus. And again, that's where I have a lot of pain. So it's very, she said it's very possible that that's where a lot of the endometriosis has grown. That's how the whole came to place that it kind of broke, it, it destroyed and created that hole. And it is actually very common for people who do have endometriosis for those holes. It's kind of a telltale sign, they said, because um, that's just how when it goes through, it destroys. So um, I guess where was I going with this? Um, some pains have gone away, but then others have continued. And that's, that's the challenge definitely of it's a lifelong disease right now. Like you said, also, I also went through the infertility treatment, which increased different amount of pains I haven't had before, you know, increased my bloating where I couldn't wear pants for three months. And I'm still struggling with that. I got kind of a pillow in. So when I sit in the car, so the seatbelt doesn't hurt me as much. Um, I'm starting to be able to wear pants without it hurting, or at least not with the elastic, but I didn't have that before. Um, that's, that's more kind of a side effect from the infertility treatment. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge. That's what I'm going to say, but education, being able to educate myself of everything that's out there and being able to share everything I learned with the community through my website or Instagram or whatever has been really meaningful to me that I can take what I learn and share it with others. Mm. I'm really sorry that you still have a lot of the pain. And, you know, when you said that, you know, she couldn't get to your bowel, she couldn't get to your bladder. It just felt like, oh my goodness, this is what I was trying to say. You know, when I said people mm -hmm. like the danger of going private was because a lot of the time endometriosis once again is a whole body disease and it needs a multidisciplinary team most of the time especially mm -hmm. when it's severe so sometimes you know you don't find for maybe 
stage one, two endometriosis, maybe if it's just on the ovaries or, you know, maybe it will be possible for the doctor to just go in there, take it out or the peritoneum, just take it out and that's it. But the truth is that many people that have endometriosis, they actually have it on other parts. And what you said at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, the course you read um, or the booklet, the book that showed that talked about endometriosis and just said, you know, it's in the ovaries. It's a lot more. It's even extra pelvic as well. So it can mm-hmm. be in the di- on the diaphragm, on the lungs. It's actually being found on every major organ of the mm-hmm. body. So if someone is, you know, trying to deal with the condition but doesn't have, you know, she's not a urologist, like you said, and she's not a bowel specialist, then it's what she did to you for you was actually the safest thing. Because you don't want someone who has no clue about the bowel just going right. there and doing what she wants just because she has access. So um, I'm really sorry that you know you still have some of the pain but you're really strong so and what you said about you know making a difference raising awareness and you know like you said I, re- I found you on Twitter just because of something you know I think it was yeah you're right it was what you had, had written for Endo Foundation and um, thank God for that like I'm glad that you have that as well so that's something that's the uh bright that's the light in this dark mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. this dark tunnel that we found ourselves so let's talk about what you're doing actually before then let's talk about something i saw in the article that you had written which was about trauma um yes. i'm curious and i'm interested and this is just because a few people have thought that with one in 10 women have endometriosis right and a lot of people in the world have trauma as well one in 10 is a high number so what is it about trauma that you think is correlated to you know the condition and trauma has happened to all of the, a lot of other people and they don't have this condition so i'm kind of curious about what you think or what your thoughts are regarding trauma and um, having this condition. Just tell me a bit more about it. I'm so glad you asked that because that is definitely one of my biggest passions right now is really talking about trauma-informed care and trauma-impacted, how trauma impacts the whole body, both mentally, physically, and also socially. And it is something that's just really starting to take a, it's, it's starting to become more of a, of a, a thing that we're learning about. Um, I first l- learned about the, the link between trauma and medical and mental health conditions in my first year of medical school. It was just a, a one hour class where we learned about the ACE study, which it is the um, adverse childhood experiences. And, what, and that study was in early 2000s by the Kaiser Foundation. And what they had is they had hundreds, they had the the records of hundreds of thousands of individuals. Um, And they did a survey um, and they sent them to see what kind of challenges did they suffer before they were 18 years old. And they found, and then once they got that survey back, then they retroacted, then they went through and saw what common conditions were associated with individuals who had more of these challenges before they were 18. Through that study that has been huge and has been replicated many, many times um, in different settings and everything has found that 
the they found kind of 10 common conditions and these conditions were one category was abuse physical psychological and sexual abuse now i'm going to go i'll then i'll go to the next thing then there's neglect there is a neglect of food and if uh, of like it's a physical neglect so neglect of not being able to provide housing not being able to provide clothes um food then there's emotional neglect not providing um the best emotional care of love and comfort all these basic emotional needs a child needs to develop properly and then the third category is more social so there is if parents are divorced if the mother figure um has or just parental figure has um, had physical attacks if one of the parents has a mental illness themselves that could be alcohol that could be you know there's a whole list of mental health images in the kind of social household dysfunction we talked about the maternal figure or mother figure being treated violently we talked about the mental illness we talked about the divorce actually another um, number nine is actually a substance abuse they actually separate that from not just the mental illness but actually if a parental or just someone in the household it doesn't have to be a parent even a sibling has a substance abuse that's another adverse childhood experience and then the tenth one is having someone incarcerated now i love how you mentioned almost everyone has some sort of trauma and that is so true and is unfortunately one of the things that a lot of people don't realize because either a lot of people in their community has suffered or maybe they think oh um maybe what i had is normal or it wasn't as bad as someone else and through my work with trauma through my um through, i've both personally and working with other trauma survivors and getting education on this is it doesn't matter if you're comparing it the fact is whatever level you had if it impacted you, if like for i'm gonna i'm gonna talk with the physical abuse if it was if it was if someone was trying to hurt you or you had any fear of being in pain or fear of you having of being hurt that was physical abuse and you didn't deserve that maybe you didn't you you maybe there are other people that had a lot worse but that doesn't matter it's the fact that 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 you're not supposed to live like that that is not appropriate um living environment so that is considered ace okay so they did the survey these were the co most common 10 things they found and then they correlated with what type of conditions are these people dealing with long term very common conditions were cardiac issues um here let me pull out the actual here it is a scores and health conditions um and i'm just i'm pulling up on google anyone have has access to this but anyway um so common things that they found were copd chronic obstructive pulmonary disease coronary heart disease cancers diabetes kidney disease depressive symptoms um less and then there's so many other factors. So those are just health conditions. There is mental health conditions like heavy substance use, more drinking, smoking. And then there's also socioeconomical things that they saw, saw that people who had greater than four ACEs, four of these common things, were more likely to have less income. So lower social economic status, lower finishing 
of high school, more unemployment. So those are just the common things. Now let me backtrack and let's talk about why I ended up including that endometriosis article. And uh, let, me, let me also pull up that specific one. Going back, the Kaiser Permanente study was done in 1995, so even before 2000s. So people knew about it since then. This particular article, and, and I had no idea it was so controversial, and it's really sad it's very controversial, but there, in the medical community, there's no controversy. I do want to mention that a lot of the controversy that I've been hearing is from the community of saying, oh, I didn't have abuse and I have endometriosis yeah. or patients who have endometriosis saying, oh, I didn't have abuse. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that individuals who have endometriosis have an increased risk of having some sort of trauma in their life, mm. not sexual trauma, not physical trauma, just it's either and or or. That's also a big thing that a lot of people are calling. I didn't have sexual abuse or I didn't have physical abuse. That's not what the study's saying. Mm. Saying just increased risk of people who had who had um, sexual abuse and or severe physical abuse have an increased risk mm. of developing endometriosis. Right. That's it. That's all it says. So this doesn't mean that just because this is not saying, oh, I have endometriosis. So that means I must have been abused. It's just saying that there's an increase in the risk of those who have it to have had some kind of trauma. That's what, that's Mm -hmm. what, I don't know if I've said it right. Exactly. You, you said it perfectly. And I want to make that loud and clear because you have, I've myself have received a lot of messages with people very upset with me and saying, how can you dare say that I didn't have trauma? And like, and so I had to, you know, re-educate of what this means. And in the, I do want to say in the scientific community, um, research wise, that it is correct. Mm-hmm. You know, it is statistically significant in how they do research. Yeah. Um, so I do want to say that now my own personal passion is seeing how all different, not just physical and sexual, I'm talking about all types of trauma. And since that 1995 study, there have been so many more studies finding that it's not just those 10 things. Racism is an, if the, is an adverse childhood experience. Low social economic status is another one of those. You know, there's so many other ones. Mm. possibly this COVID is going to be considered because of how much of an impact it had on people. So I do want to mention that trauma, yes, it can happen to everyone. And maybe not everyone has a similar mental condition or physical experience from it, but it, but it most likely you will have something from it. It's just how humans work, how we deal with extreme stress in our life. We just each deal with it different ways. And it comes out sometimes in the body, sometimes in the mind, or sometimes through both. Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm so happy that you've, you know, shed some light on what the research is and, you know, how passionate you are about it. And I really wanted to mention that because I felt like that would have been the elephant in the room. Because like you said, yes. in, in the in the community, I saw, I think I saw a post or something not too long ago where someone was like, here we go again, patient blaming. And I was like, hmm, this is interesting. That's probably not what 
you know this is about like but i get i get your research and like you said if it's statistically significant then it is and it's just for people to understand that there are so many things that you know happen to us that we don't like you said we don't think that we've experienced trauma but our bodies actually have and everything going on in our body is a series of um, chemical reactions right hormones mm-hmm. is chemical reactions like you know that's why you can be afraid and start sweating like there's a physical mm-hmm. um, reaction to that um, emotional fear or something like that so but yeah that's really interesting and well done for all you're doing so are you, you. doing further research into it are you trying to you know go for a doctorate or something into this <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's an interesting question um I'm not trying to get my PhD I'm just doing my MD however um a lot of MDs do do continue with research and that's what I'm trying to do I'm working um with a lot of different things to further education and research on traumas linked to health conditions and mental health conditions on um I haven't yet gone in specifically into endometriosis but since I deal with it myself, I kind of naturally start, you know, speaking with other doctors about it, seeing how I can plug in. Um, but I also have to work on my studies. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a hard balance. <laughs> but yes, lot- I do plan. I do plan once I actually finish my doctorate, finish my residency to continue in the to continue with the advocacy and continuing up research um, for these conditions that for me are very personal. Yeah. And I know for millions of others, they are too. Yeah, you're a powerhouse. Well done, Stephanie. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. For the final question, uh, well, almost the final question, <laughs> you mentioned your website. Can you um, tell us the link so that people who are interested can go and have a look and read some of the things um, on the blog? And then the final question would be, you know, what you would, you know, word of encouragement for people who are going through um, some kind of pain, some kind of maybe have been through trauma and are suddenly now have, well, maybe not suddenly, but have some physical or mental, you know, manifestation of some kind of condition. And, you know, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I created, um, it all started with an Instagram where I started my story and it was called Med Psych Moss. And I kind of, I've stuck, I've stuck with that because it's a mix of my passion of medicine, so MED, and then psych, I got a bachelor's in psychi- psychology, and I might, I might go on to psychiatry, I'm not sure yet, but med, MED, psych, P-S-Y-C, and MOSS, M-O-S-S, so medpsychmoss.com, medpsychmoss.com, or at medpsychmoss, and that is the website, once you get to medpsychmoss.com, you can then reach all my social medias on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube. But the reason I created that website was I seem to be always being like the liaison and connecting of information. So my website is, is in addition to, of course, being a blog, I've really, my passion for it is putting resources, both for patients, for individuals who deal with um, conditions, both pelvic floor, trauma-based so so patients and then also another section just right underneath for for healthcare providers so they can learn how to better treat and better provide resources to their patients so I'm trying to bridge that gap um, both for patients and for health providers oh well done thank you so much thank you oh and then let me answer your second question um really I I think the biggest lesson 
I've learned through this entire thing that I really want to pass on is you do not deserve to be in pain and no one has the right to tell you you are not in pain or your pain doesn't matter. That's it. That's not, pain is not normal. The pain is real. It's real to you, whether that's pain physical or if it's pain, your, your heart, you know, your mind is in pain, that's real and you don't deserve to be in that pain. So if someone says, you know, you're not dealing with or we can't do anything, get a second opinion, go to someone else. You have the right and maybe, I want to say you won't hurt the doctor's feelings. Yeah, you might hurt the doctor's feelings, but that doesn't matter. You have the right to ask for another opinion. I'm going to give you a clap. (laughs) I'm going to applaud that because that was so good. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steph. Thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your experiences, for sharing, you know, what you're doing and your advocacy work and how you're raising awareness. And for that amazing and powerful word of wisdom. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah, and to everyone listening, please go on um, Stephanie's website and go and learn more. And all of the information will be in the show notes. So that's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to share, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like to share your story, please reach out on Instagram or Facebook or send an email to info at notdefinedbyendo.com. Till next time. Remember, you are not defined by endo.